0: Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can find one, and get with me to Revelation chapter 3. In the Bibles that we have here, you'll find Revelation chapter 3 on page 993. 993. Um, Truth be told, uh, yesterday afternoon, I was sitting at home with my kids. Um, David, our lead pastor, um, had a game plan, and it was to give a message that we were going to record on Saturday night at the Beloit campus and then show at all of our campuses. And so we were talking throughout the course of the day, and it sounded like maybe we wouldn't have the, the volunteers to operate cameras up at the Beloit campus, and there were a couple other little hiccups, so he called an audible. And he said, okay, let's switch it up. Preach what you're going to preach next weekend, this weekend. So uh, if this appears to be a half-baked sermon that's unprepared, it is. So uh, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. Um, but get with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17. It is a letter to a church in Laodicea, and I want to read the text, and then we'll pray, and we will get to work. Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of Of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked." I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, right now we ask that you would minister to each and every heart in here and to anyone who wasn't able to be here this morning but might watch later online. Lord, would you help us to hear the voice of the risen Christ? And would you help us to listen to the diagnosis that you give, and then be willing to follow your protocol to get healthy and well. And I know that this text for me has often been unsettling, and that's okay. I pray that it's disruptive in a good and gospel way, but it helps us then to build on the foundation of what you've done for us in the sending of your Son. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask for your Spirit's ministry to each of us. We want to hear your voice loud and clear. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we have the Lord speaking to believers. If you look at verse 14, it says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. So he's speaking to the people of God. If you're not a Christian or not a Christian yet, this is a message for believers. And feel free to, to tune in and listen in. But this is a message that God has for his people And what he says to this church and to those members of that church is really startling and unsettling in a good and beautiful way. So he's speaking to the Laodicean church, and he is this incredible physician of souls. I love that language. In fact, I was thinking about it for the past 12 years. When I stepped into full-time ministry in a local church, the one question that I've worked on throughout those 12 years, consistently, every year, re- reassessing, do I understand this? Here's the one question. What is a pastor? And then the outworking of that, what does a pastor do? And that, that, that question has really been a, a project of mine that I've just prayed over and thought over and studied the scriptures and read church history and all these different things. And one of the things that, that has been consistently said throughout the, the history of the church is a pastor is a physician of souls. A pastor has the responsibility of caring for the souls of their their church members. And and, um, here, here what we're finding is Jesus is the supreme physician. He's the one who understands the condition of a person's soul in a way that no other person can claim. Not even the very best pastors out there can do this. He has an awareness. He has an ability about himself to see what is true and to properly diagnose and care for these individuals. Look at verse 14. Here's how he puts it. These are the words of the amen. Where does amen come in a prayer? It's at the end. It's that final word. It's like when, my kid, when we're praying at dinner time, my kids are waiting for that final moment to happen so that they can say the amen, and they're anticipating it. But Jesus himself is the amen. He's the final word on any matter of discussion. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He's the one who knows the condition of people, even if they're self-deceived. He's the true witness. He's the faithful and true witness who can look at somebody and can see not just the activities of their lives, but he can see to the very core of who they are and what he says, what he testifies to, what he witnesses to. That's true. No matter what that person might think of themselves, he's the one who can say, I know all things, I rule all things, you are mine, I made you, I understand you, I'm fully aware of the nuances of in the depths of your heart. Here's what I say to be true of you. So he's the physician and he's looking at his church, and he's able to say then, here's what I see. Here's the diagnosis, here's what I understand to be going on. And it's not, it's not a good one. It's a it's a It's a negative condition. It's a condition that needs to be addressed. So look with me in verses 15 and 16, and this is where he looks at his church, and he says, I I know what's truly going on, and you might think one thing, but let me tell you what's really happening here. Look at verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of, out of my mouth. Jesus is looking at his church, and he's saying, there's something about your condition that is repulsive to me. There's something about your condition that, that when I think about you, I, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't mean to start any fights up here, but for me, that's something like LaCroix, like that carbonated water that tastes like, you know, somebody ate fruit and burped in your water bottle. And I, I put that in my mouth, and I'm like, pfft. That is not... I know some of you love it. My dad loves it dearly. My wife loves it, but it's not for me. But, but Jesus is saying there's, there's a condition in his church that when he thinks about her, it's something that's repulsive to him. And what is it? It's this condition that he calls being lukewarm. Not being hot, not being cold, but being tepid, being lukewarm. Now, the church in Laodicea would understand this well because... If you, if you look up some of the details, and I'd encourage you to do that, you look up what, what Laodicea was like in the first century and what was going on around then. Well, Laodicea was a city that had two other notable cities near them, and they were known for their, their water supply. So one nearby city had hot springs. And so you could travel there, and then you could, you know, sit in the hot springs and it'd be like a, you know, a nature's hot tub. And you'd sit there, and it'd feel good on your muscles, and it's relaxing, and all of that. And the Laodiceans would know about that because that was their neighboring town. And then in another direction, there was a place with cold springs, where the water that was their water supply was ice cold. It was coming maybe from a mountain runoff or something like that. If you've ever swam. In in a body of water that is spring-fed by a, by cold springs, you know what I'm talking about. When we were up in Canada, I remember one of the lakes that we were going through. Um, it was spring-fed, and we got into the water, and this was you know August, and it's blazing hot out. All the other all the other lakes are kind of normal temperature, and you can swim in them comfortably. But when you got in this water, you almost went into shock. It was like oh, it takes your breath away. It's so cold. And so there's cold springs in one direction, there's hot springs in another direction, but this water supply is coming together in Laodicea, and it's just producing a lukewarm water that they would have to do something with then to be able to have it be usable. And so when Jesus says, here's the condition that I find in this church, I find it to be lukewarm and therefore good for nothing. I wish it were either hot or cold, but as it is, it stands to be spit out of my mouth. Well, what is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about here? He's not just talking about water, he's talking about us. He's talking to his church, about his church, and he's assessing it and saying, here's my diagnosis. What I find in the church is people who aren't hot and they're not cold, but they're just lukewarm. And, and it, what is it then that he's after? If you read the Bible, God wants his people to be hot. He wants his people to be hot to the things of God. In fact, if you think about Let's say the road to Emmaus, two disciples are walking after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and Jesus comes up beside them, and they don't recognize him, and Jesus starts telling them, he starts explaining the scriptures to them, Old Testament and the prophets and the Psalms, and he's opening all these things up and showing their connectedness to him. And what do they say after the fact when they realize that it was him all along? They said, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? We want to have that experience that our hearts are on fire for the things of God. When Paul talks to Timothy, he says, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. You want it to be hot. You want this thing to be white hot. Over and over again, throughout scriptures, you see this concern for the people of God to have a heat about them. In fact, later on in our text, we'll get to it in a few minutes, but it tells us, Jesus says, here's what you need to do. Be earnest. Be earnest. And that word means passionate, and it means to have zeal, and it means to, to put some energy and some resolve into the things of God. And he's saying, that's really what I want. I want you to be hot for the things of God. I want you to be on fire for what God is after in your life. But as it stands, a lot of Christians are not hot. They're just lukewarm. They they think about the things of God, and they're, they're not inspired by them. They're not resolved by them. They're, they're just kind of... It is what it is. They're lukewarm to these things. And so Jesus is saying, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but as it is, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, a lot of commentators struggle with that. Why would he, why would he say hot or cold? And here's, here's the reason why. If, if Jesus said to me, I need you to share, to share the gospel with some people this week, with a person this week, and you get to choose between one of these two individuals, One of these individuals is an unbeliever, doesn't know anything about God, doesn't really care about the things of God, openly professes an ignorance about the things of God, but they're just kind of cold to to God himself. You can either share the gospel, the good news with that person, or option number two, you could share the gospel with somebody who calls themselves a Christian, but they don't have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They don't have any fruit or evidence of a saving relationship with the Lord himself. They just profess to be a Christian, but they don't actually follow Christ. They would say they do, so which one would you choose? Which one would be an easier sell? The person who's cold to the things of God, or the person who's lukewarm and just considers himself already to be a Christian? i tell you how I would choose, and this bears you know, experience in ministry as well. I would always choose the unbeliever. That the unbeliever would always be much easier to present the gospel to in a way that's compelling. A person who already considers themselves to be a Christian when they're not, in my opinion, is actually further from God than a person who is an unbeliever and openly says, I'm I'm not a follower of God. I don't really care about God. So when Jesus says this, here's what he's he's looking at his church and he's saying, There's a condition, a malady. That, that needs to be addressed. It's when Christians are lukewarm to the things of God. And he's saying that is the issue, that is the problem. I know your deeds, you're not hot, you're not cold, so I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, he goes on to explain the condition, and he gives some, some details, some nuance to why they feel a certain way, but why he says it's different. Verse 17, he says, You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He's looking at the church and he's saying, I know that you consider yourself to be a certain way, but the reality is the exact opposite. Now, this is ironic because Laodicea is a very affluent city. Everything that Jesus says here actually runs against their their experience as a society. Laodicea, and you can look this up in commentaries or just Google you know, Laodicea, and you'll find out some of these details. Laodicea was a very affluent city. They were on kind of a, a busy trade route, and so financially they were well off. And uh, there was a situation historians talk about where In in, um, 60 AD, there was an earthquake, and the infrastructure of the city kind of collapsed. And they were able to self-finance the rebuilding process. They didn't have to have it subsidized by anybody else. They didn't have to go to Rome and ask for any help. In fact, they began to boast about that. That was one of the features of their city. We're so well off, we don't need any help. They had enough money that they didn't have to lean on anyone else for any help. They were also a, a textile city meaning they made fabrics, they made clothes, they made very exotic and beautiful items of clothing. So they were well-known for the things that they would wear. If you're a Laodicean, you'd have this gear that everyone could look at and say, man, that person is beautifully dressed. They, they were also uh, a medicinal community. One of the things that was unique about them was that they they uh, had this thing that they created in their community that was a, that they would put in the salve To place on people's eyes who had who had you know eye conditions, they were known for that, and so Jesus is now ironically speaking to them, and he's saying all these different things that you think are commendable about yourself. You think you're rich. You think you're well off. You 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 think that you're all these different things, but I tell you, here's what's really going on. You're spiritually bankrupt. You might assess your own condition and think you're totally okay, but Jesus is saying, I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm the amen. I know what's really going on. Here's what you need to know. You are spiritually bankrupt. Now, that's an unsettling reality. I remember uh, over the summertime, I injured my knee wakeboarding, and I knew right away that something wasn't right, but I thought to myself, I probably just sprained or bruised it. So give it enough time, and it'll be fine. I'll, I'll be okay. So I just kept on doing life like normal. I went wakeboarding again. I was mowing my lawn. I was working out, which I don't do very often, so don't imagine anything cool like that. But um, I was just doing life as normal, thinking eventually my, my leg will kind of get better. And finally, I realized, you know what, it's not really getting much better. I suppose I should probably go in and have it checked out. And so I meet with the surgeon, and he says, um, you know, we'll do some imaging, because until we have the imaging, you know, it's, it's kind of silly to make an assessment so let's do the MRI and we'll get you back in here after the results come in and then we'll go from there and so we do the MRI and then a few days later I think to myself I bet the MRI is done I bet uh, the imaging has come in and they've read it and so I'm gonna hop online and read my chart I'm gonna go on my health chart and go on there and see what's up and I remember logging in clicking on test results and In there is the, you know, they number out all the different things that they see there. And number one, it says, complete tear or rupture of the, whatever ACL stands for. And so I read that, and I just, there was a sinking feeling in my gut, right? Because for the very first time, I'm looking at the diagnosis, and this is just a fact in front of me, and now all of a sudden, I have to adjust my life accordingly, That reality of, okay, here's what is really going on with me. I might be walking around going, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'll be fine, I'll heal up. But then the result comes back, and here's what it says, complete rupture of the ACL, and and then all the recommendations after that, all the other things that were going on as well. Here's what Jesus is doing to us this morning. We might be walking around saying, no, I'm fine. I'm okay, look at me, I'm at church. It's a snowy weekend, and I'm at church. But if Jesus is looking at you and he's declaring, here's the reality that I know to be true. There's a spiritual bankruptcy here. You might say that you're fine and you might be going through all the motions of Christianity, but if Jesus is saying to you, complete spiritual bankruptcy, that is a very unsettling reality, but it's also a grace. Because if he's able to tell you what's really going on at the level of your soul, the only way up now is, the only way forward is up. It's, it's going to God and realizing, okay, he's addressing the real condition of my soul. So if he's able to do that, if he's able to diagnose me, then I wonder what he's going to do for me. But he's saying this church that believes itself to be so well off is actually in a very dire condition, in a very poor condition. And I'm, I guess I'm just wondering if we're willing to hear that. I'm wondering if we're willing to listen to the voice of Christ and his assessment of who we truly are. Um, I've had the privilege of traveling to lots of different places. When I was doing the action sports ministry and my schedule was much more flexible, um, I was able to, to go to different places in the world and, and spend significant time there. And um, I guess I'd I'd put it like this, being in places like Kenya for an extended stay and Haiti and Honduras and Mexico and other places in, in the developing world and seeing the church there, one of the reasons why I'm standing up here today is because having been in those environments and seen the experience of the local church in those different places and then coming back to America and feeling like, I think, and this is my personal opinion, so take it for whatever it's worth, I think the majority of the American church is lukewarm. And instead of going off to the mission field and being in places like that and investing my life in places like that, as I prayed about it and, and you know asked for God's leading, I felt like he was leading me to be significantly involved in a local church in America for that very reason. That we cannot be a place that Jesus looks at and says you're lukewarm. We can't even be a place where if you were to invite people, Christians from those other places to come in, I don't want to be the kind of place where you'd be embarrassed. Where where you recognize that if they were here and evaluating our lives and evaluating the way we do ministry, where where they would have a lot of critiques wondering why we are so comfortable, why we are so apathetic to the things of God, why we are so prayerless in the way that we go about the things that we do. I want to be a church that's on fire for the things of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us we are spiritually bankrupt. But then he gives us the remedy. He begins to tell us the good news. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you. That's a kindness. Here's what Jesus is saying. Not only do I know the condition of your soul, but I'm right here to work with you through this. I'm not just telling you, you know, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out. He's saying, here's, what, here's, here's the way forward. I counsel you to come to me. I counsel you to listen to my voice and to buy from me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He's saying, I understand where you're at right now, but I I want you, I invite you to come to me and to receive all that you would need. And he uses, again, things that were common to them in Laodicea, but but things that are filled with all kinds of meaning. He's telling us that he's going to give us this gold, this thing of value which is refined by fire, it means that what we're going to receive will actually be improved by the suffering, by the refinement, by the difficulties that we go through. He's saying, don't just be a comfortable church. Be a person whose faith is sincere and tested. I'll give you gold refined by fire. I'll give you white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Over and over in the scriptures, white clothes, are, they, they point to the, the cleansing work that God has done through the blood of Jesus Christ. He, he gives us a robe. He puts a robe on us like Zechariah chapter three. The high priest is being accused by Satan and he's filthy. And, and the, the angel of the Lord comes and he rebukes Satan and he says to, to the angels, put a white garment on him and a turban on his head. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you what you can't produce on your own. I'm going to clothe you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a white garment that will cover your shameful nakedness. I'm going to give you something that will give you that peace with him forever. He says, uh, I'm going to give you salve." to put on your eyes so that you can see. I'm going to take away that spiritual blindness that you, know, you, you look at the things of God and you're unimpressed by them. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with that condition where when you're looking at the things of God, you don't even see it for what it is. I'm going to remove spiritual blindness from you. Jesus is saying, I understand where you're at, but here's my diagnosis. Come to me and receive from me everything that you would need. Buy from me everything that you need. Now, you might be asking the question, how on earth am I supposed to buy if I'm wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? How am I supposed to come to you? What do I have to offer? What on earth could I come and and purchase from you? I don't have anything, and that's the exact point. He's saying he will gift you with everything that you need. This comes from the idea in Isaiah 55, verse 1, where it says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without cost. That's how the gospel works. We recognize we don't have anything. We don't have anything that we can leverage and try to get from God. We come empty-handed, and he says, I'll give you everything that you need. You think that you're okay. You think that you're well-off. You think that you're rich. Here's what you actually need to recognize. You don't have anything. And when you finally come to that conclusion, then you can come empty-handed to the one who's willing to gift you everything that you could possibly need through Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel um, I remember preaching this message based off of this text. It's been, it's been a while now. It's probably been seven or eight years. And uh, I got done. It was up at the Bloyd campus, and I got done um, preaching. And and uh, we were hanging out and just talking. And a guy kind of lingered for a bit. And finally, it was just a few of us in the auditorium. And he comes up to me and he says, "You know, so everyone's cleared out. It's just him and me and maybe a couple other people shutting things down." And he goes. I didn't like that message, and he wags his finger in my face, and he says, "Um, "Where was the gospel in that message?" And then he began to explain. He, you know, God is saying here that you can have clothing, that you can have riches, that you can have all these different things, and he was he was upset, and and rightly so. And so I, 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 you know, we talked through it, and I went back to my notes, and that's one of the beauties of you know, preaching on a Saturday night, you get to make some changes. So I went back to my notes and I said, am I really missing what God is saying here? Because here's, the, here's what I see to be true. And this guy was absolutely right. If Jesus is correcting you, it is the gospel. There's good news tucked into this. If he's, if he's identifying a condition that's going on, he's also providing for you the remedy that you would need. He's not only saying, I know that you're lukewarm. He's saying, here's the way to change. Come to me and get from me everything that you would need and I will give it to you free of cost. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. You might feel like Jesus is kind of going up one side and down the other with you, but here's the reality. He's not only addressing the condition of your heart, he's also looking to be the remedy for you. And he's speaking this in a loving and gracious manner. He says it exactly like this in verse 19, those whom I love... I rebuke and discipline. He loves us enough to correct us. He loves us enough to look at our, us and, and, and not just kind of roll his eyes and walk away. He's, he's pursuing us. He's committed to us. And he rebukes us and he disciplines us. And it's a feature of his love. So here's what we do. Verse 19. So be earnest and repent. If we, want to, if we want this to look any different after today, here's what he's telling us to do. Be earnest and repent. Stop doing things in the way that you've been doing them to this point and go to God in prayer, humbling yourself, saying, I thought I was affluent, I thought I was okay, I thought I had all kinds of good things to commend myself to heaven and to you, God, but at, at the end of the day, here's what I'm realizing. I am spiritually bankrupt, and that is okay, because the one thing that I need is you, and you give yourself freely to me. Be earnest and repent. And here's the result, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Now, a lot of evangelists use this to talk about people who aren't Christians, but the truth is, if you're reading it, it's talking about believers. It's talking to a church. It's talking to people who've already made a profession of faith. And he's saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Uh, my parents own some rental property, and I help them with it, and that means that you know I help work with the people and communicate to them, and sometimes I have to go over there and I have to knock on doors, because um, you know, they, they either fail to pay on time or whatever the case might be. And so I go over there, and it, so this is the picture in my mind, and I'm knocking on the door, and I can imagine what's going on on the back side of it. They're like don't say anything. Maybe he'll go away. And I think that's how a lot of Christians are. That Jesus is standing at the door, and he's knocking, and we're concerned that if we really open the door, it's going to be nothing but trouble for us. And in a sense, that's kind of true, because he's going he's to reprioritize our lives, and he's going to make some adjustments and some changes. But, but man, he's there, and he's knocking, and, and I want you to hear this. He's, he's not knocking like huffy, puffy, like frustrated with you. He's not annoyed by you. Jesus isn't sitting around rolling his eyes like, are you kidding me? These guys are such a joke. No, he loves us. He loves us enough to correct and rebuke us. He loves us enough to patiently knock. I'm at your door. If you would hear my voice and open this door to me, here's, what, here's, what, here's what's in store. I will come in and I will eat with you. Man, that is an intimate and personal experience, but Jesus is saying, I will have this fellowship with you and you with me. And then he says something very incredible, something I honestly have had a hard time uh, getting on board with, but verse 21 says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father, on his throne. He's saying if you hear his voice and if you respond by faith and if you admit your spiritual lukewarmness and you go to him and you buy from him and you receive from him all of the blessings of the gospel, he's saying to those who are victorious who th- those who overcome to those who experience this reality, I will give you a privileged position in heaven. You will sit with me on my throne. And and really if any of us are on the throne, what business do we have being there? If we're honest, the only thing that we can say is this is an incredible grace that I would sit by my king, by my Lord, by my Savior, and sit with him on his throne. So here's what Jesus is doing He's patiently knocking and he's inviting us. Will you please be earnest and repent? Will you please hear my voice and open it, open the door so that I might come in and be with you. G. Campbell Morgan put it like this, the only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ. The only only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ. If we're going to repent, here's what we're saying. Jesus isn't here. I'm going through the motions and I'm doing Christian things, but he's not in here. He's not residing with me. He's not, I'm not in fellowship with him. He's outside the door and he's not patiently knocking. And so I'm going to repent, hear his voice and open it to him. And he needs to be readmitted to the center of my life and the center of our church. That's what's going on this morning. John Stott and his little commentary on these letters, he puts it like this, to be half-hearted complacent, and only casually interested in the things of God, is to prove oneself not a Christian at all, and to be so distasteful to Christ as to be in danger of rejection. But to be wholehearted in one's devotion to Christ, having opened the door and submitted without reserve to him, is to be given the privilege both of dining with him on earth and reigning with him in heaven. The invitation is very plain this morning. Jesus is saying, will you open yourself to me again? Will you admit your spiritual bankruptcy and find in me everything that you could ever hope for or dream for? Would you do that? I'm going to pray right now and the band's going to come. We'll do one more song, but let's continue to allow the Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, to hear the news, to hear the the accurate assessment of our spiritual condition can be troubling. And I pray for anyone in here right now who's experiencing that disruption, that, that just recognition that maybe things aren't right. And, and there might be a par- portion of us that wants to justify ourselves and say, no, 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 that's not really true. Corey's just a jerk. Or, Jesus, would you instead give us the ability to hear your voice and, and your diagnosis And help us to lean into that with a confidence that you love us. And part of the reason why you're rebuking and disciplining us is because you love us. So help us to hear your voice and open the door to you. Verse 22, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.